And sometimes I think we kind of put that, the seriousness of it, to the side. And not only for us as individuals, but for us as a church body. And for that, we're going to go back to Joshua 7, part, part of which uh, Luke read for us this morning. And the story that we're looking at takes place right after the amazing defeat and the destruction of the walls of Jericho, that great battle that took place on God's part. And as Joshua was down on his knees before the Lord, the Lord told him he'd give the city of Jericho, This was before, as they were heading towards Jericho, God said, I'll give the city of Jericho to you, and they were to do exactly as he said, and God was faithful. We know the story. And that reminds me of what we pointed out last week, even in the life of Jesus. Jesus himself said, I only do what my Father tells me to do. So when God gives instructions, he expects us to carry them out exactly as he gives them. And anything other than that is sin. Everything we do, we should be praying about and asking God if this is his will. So Joshua and the Israelites went in and they defeated Jericho with ease because God did it. Because they did exactly what God told them and how God told them to do it. Precisely. There was one caveat, though, to taking the city of Jericho. And this is the instruction that Joshua gave to the people, having received it from the Lord before they went into Jericho. In Joshua chapter 6, verse 18, he says, But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Now that was a little bit unusual because normally in these battles the people were allowed to enjoy the spoils of the battles. But in this case the whole city of Jericho was cursed by God and God didn't want any part of it in the hands of his people. In fact, at the end of the chapter Joshua said that even the one who attempted to rebuild the city was, would be cursed. Cursed before the Lord, Joshua pronounced, is the one who undertakes to rebuild the city, Jericho. So they did as God wanted, and they destroyed the city. And we read in verse 24, then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house, exactly that as God had prescribed. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. That's another mighty act of God's power, if you think about it. His redeeming and transforming power, which continues to work unto this day in the lives of people. This heathen prostitute was saved by God's grace and was brought into his family, into his people. And folks, nothing is said about her afterwards, but I would bet you anything that she didn't continue in her life of prostitution because she had been forgiven and her life was transformed. One cannot continue in your own lifestyle and expect God to bless. 
So with the fortress of Jericho defeated and destroyed, the men of Israel set their eyes on the next city, the city of Ai. And that is the correct way of pronouncing that according to the Hebrew. Because God had given them the whole land and were told to take possession, right? All of Canaan. So this was the next logical step for them. Remember back in the first chapter of Joshua, God had given Joshua some very strong instructions and an amazing promise as he gave the leadership to him. These instructions and this promise are reiterated throughout Scripture in various ways and are for every believer. It wasn't just for Joshua. In Joshua chapter 1, starting at verse 7, God said to Joshua, "'Be strong and very courageous.'" Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything within it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Why? For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. We love that last line, don't we? God will be with us wherever we go. There are a lot of believers who like to focus on that phrase and then ignore the rest that comes after it. They want to do whatever they want to do and still expect God to go wherever we go and give us that prosperity and give us the victory. We are to keep this book always on our lips, meditating on it day and night. How often do we do that? That's a personal question for everybody, myself included. Why are we to do that? So that we may be careful to do everything written in it. That's the instructions we have from the Lord. Our lives ought to be transformed and conformed to the truth. We talked about that last week, did we not? We are to be sanctified, made holy by the truth, Jesus said. And as we are conformed by the truth and to the truth, that's when God's promise kicks in. Then you will be prosperous and successful, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So this was the promise that Joshua and the men of Israel were counting on as they set their eyes on the city of Ai, no pun intended. But there was a problem unbeknownst to them. Now you remember that Joshua had reminded the people before going into Jericho that the Lord had basically cursed the whole city of Jericho and they weren't to touch any of it for themselves. And they were to put all the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But one man, one man in Israel, perhaps with his family as accomplices, because they dug within his tent to hide it, disregarded Joshua's command and foolishly took some of which was set aside for God. Now it's interesting to me that this whole story of chapter 7 surrounding the battle for the city of Ai focused on a little hidden sin. Little hidden sin that nobody else was aware of. But that one little sin in the heart of one family affected the whole body. Once again, as we see throughout Scripture, God takes sin very seriously, whether we do or not. 
The whole story starts with the fact that this one man sinned, and the sin was not discovered until a lot of damage was done. And God held the whole camp of Israel liable for that sin, and 36 of them died because of it. And I don't think it had to have been that way. Listen to verse 1 of chapter 7. But the Israelites were faithful in regard to the devoted things. I'm sorry, thank you. Unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. The Israelites, okay, plural, the whole camp. Achan, one man, son of Carmi, took some of the devoted things, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Why? Because they were together, they were to be watching out for each other, that fellowship together, they were supposed to be keeping each other on on the straight and narrow, if you were, encouraging each other to walk according to God's direction, and they missed this and affected all of them. So who was this Achan anyway? Very little is actually said about him. So he probably wasn't somebody of great significance when you think about two million Israelites that were there. What we do know is that he was from the tribe of Judah. Scripture tells us that. He was a husband and a father of sons and daughters. He was pretty well off financially because it says he owned cattle and donkeys and sheep. He unfortunately was also also a covetous man, a greedy man, which ended up turning him into a thief. Now, Joshua and the rest of the men were not aware of what Achan had done. Nor, and more importantly, were they aware that the Lord's anger burned against them. So they set their eyes on the next town to conquer. Because God, after all, had said, given you Canaan, I ain't going to be with you. Go and conquer it. He told them that he'd be with them. So we read in verse 2 of chapter 7, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied, it out, or spied out Ai. And when they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or 3,000 men to take it, and, and don't weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about 3,000 went up. That's a sizable group of people. But they were routed by the men of Ai who killed about 36 of them. And at this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. You know, I find this interesting because there seems to be something important missing in this text. I don't see anywhere where it tells us that they sought the Lord before going against the city. Now, one of the cardinal sins of interpreting Scripture is to argue from silence. You're never supposed to do that. In other words, just because it doesn't say something, you're not supposed to make a big, huge theological point about what's not there. What what we cannot say is that they were defeated because they didn't seek the Lord. Scripture doesn't say that, because Scripture actually is very clear why uh, why they were defeated. But I would venture to say that if Joshua had sought the Lord first, he probably wouldn't have lost 36 men. Because God would probably have said, don't go because I won't be with you because there is sin in the camp. Deal with the sin and then watch me work. 
I'm fairly confident in saying that because that's God's character. He doesn't work and bless in the midst of sin. If we are harboring sin in our lives, that needs to be dealt with first before we see God's blessing. If we are harboring sin in the body of the church, that needs to be dealt with first in order to see God work. So Joshua is totally unnerved. He's shocked at, at what just took place. His men are devastated. They're confused. They're, they're afraid. And in verse 6, really rather fascinating, after the battle, Joshua goes to the Lord, and he is not a happy camper with God. He's upset with God. And it says, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord and said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites just to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon my, uh, your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and, and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your great name? God, what in the world? What were you thinking? Where were you? Because you didn't show up, all those armies are going to think that we're a bunch of wimps and they're going to gather together and they're going to wipe us out now. Uh, your reputation is on the line. What are you going to do for your great name? Wow, the audacity of that is over the top. And God quickly puts him in his place in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them in their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. That's strong. Let that sink in a minute. I will not be with you unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Do you think God takes sin seriously? Achan becomes a poster child of the hindrance of God's power. Sin, if not dealt with, hinders God's power. It hinders God from working. It kept God from going with them to the city of Ai, and as a result, they were routed and 36 of their men were killed. So what was God's solution after that took place? It's twofold. One, confession and purification. In verse 13, God tells Joshua, go consecrate the people. They had to admit and confess their sin and then ask God to forgive them. In the Old Testament, forgiveness comes through sacrifice. And that principle hasn't changed in the New Testament, and it is still the same today. We have to admit and confess our sin. We can't confess sin if we don't admit it. 
Too many Christians have a hard time admitting their fault. It's just a really hard thing for us sometimes to do, just really realize and admit that we might be at fault. You know, if we get to that place, sometimes, oh, you know what, I'll just stop doing it and, and uh, let, let's just move on. Nothing to see here. Not good enough. Not good enough. The sin is still there and the effects of sin are still there. 1 John 1.9 tells us, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now remember, the forgiveness of the New Testament also comes through sacrifice, but now it's from the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate, perfect Lamb of God once for all. But there is a second aspect to God's solution. And that was to eradicate the sin. Eradicate the sin. Confession does no good if you hang on to sin and allow sin to continue in your life. In the second half of verse 13, God said this, There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. There was sin in the camp. There was hidden sin in the camp. And until they removed this sin, until they eradicated the sin, God was not going to bless them. Why is that? Folks, God is a holy God. He is a pure God. He is a righteous God. He cannot look upon sin. He will not work in the midst of sin. The late Billy Graham once wrote this, God's holiness is righteous and pure. The Bible says your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. It's Habakkuk 1.13. Certainly, he goes on to say, God notices evil and condemns it. The passage is clarifying that he will not look upon evil and tolerate it. He will indeed judge sin and Doing evil is sin. And that's exactly what we find him doing here in the situation with Achan. There are so many believers that think, you know, I don't know if God will really do that. I've gotten away with it before. God's a God of love. But you see, he's not like so many parents who threaten big to try to get their kids to obey. Johnny, stop doing that right now. You'll never eat again. Really? (laughs) Folks, God doesn't threaten. God promises. God promises. He promises wonderful things, and He keeps all of His promises. But He also promises punishments to those who rebel against Him, and He keeps those promises as well. God's desire is to bless His people and He will do whatever is necessary in order to bless them. And that's what He did here in this incident that we're reading about and studying. And God gave Joshua the instruction in verse 14. Listen. In the morning, next day, present yourself tribe by tribe. The tribe that the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. 
And the family of the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Can you imagine this process taking place as it keeps getting whittled down closer and closer to you? Whoever is caught with a devoted thing shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. And that's exactly what took place. And at the end of the, uh, the process, God indicated that it was Achan who had sinned. And then, and only then, did Achan confess. Isn't that interesting? But it was too late. Like many sinners, Achan only confessed his sin when it was discovered, when he had no choice. In his heart, if his heart had been in the right place, he had the opportunity to, to repent earlier. He could have come forward and confessed his sin after Israel was defeated by Ai, or even before that. But instead, his heart was hardened. He was hoping he would be able to get away with it, and his confession was offered only after his sin was actually exposed. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. Hoping nothing would be done. And God had the people of Israel take them out back. And we read in verse 24, Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, I'm assuming his wife had already passed on, she's not included in this, his cattle, donkeys, sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. So here's a question. Why did God judge the sin of Achan so severely? I think there are a number of reasons. One, Achan directly disobeyed God's command. Directly disobeyed. God had said, don't touch, don't take, Destroy everything because everything is evil. Only the things that would not burn, the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron, are sacred to the Lord. They are to put in the treasury. Achan became greedy. And he thought of self first. And purposefully disobeyed God's command. He knew. He had heard. It wasn't like he had missed the memo. Secondly, and this is related to the first, the gold and silver Achan stole was then stolen from God himself. All those things were devoted to God, and Achan robbed God. And in doing that, it was also an insult to God's holiness and his right to command his people in the manner that God saw But even with that, God in grace gave Achan a night to consider his sin and come to him in repentance. In verse 13, God told Joshua, go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. He had all night to think about this and ask forgiveness for this. What was consecration? Admit sin, confess sin, ask forgiveness for sin, be purified. God gave him an opportunity and he chose not to. Thirdly, Achan's sin affected the entire nation of Israel. In chapter 6, 
Before they marched around the walls of Jericho seven times, God had warned them, keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. Again, it wasn't like Achan didn't know about that. See, the nation as a whole was in a covenant relationship with God. And when one member transgressed this covenant, the entire nation's relationship with him was damaged. Folks, this happens in the context of the church body as well. When there is active sin within a church, among the members of the church, God's not going to bless the way he wants to. God still takes sin within the body seriously. Fortunately, stoning and burning is not involved. We got rid of the pile of stones over there by the pond just to make sure. Roy threatened with me with that periodically. But God takes sin within the body seriously. And Jesus gave very specific instructions now as to what, how we need to deal with sin within the body. In Matthew chapter 18, we read in verses 15 to 17, and we call that church discipline. You've heard that term. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And that's the hope that all can be taken care of immediately and all, all is well. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. God takes sin within the body of the believers very seriously. Sin is so often tolerated within a church because nobody wants to hurt anybody's feelings. Might lose somebody. Paul speaks very strongly about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The believers in the church of Corinth were tolerating unrepented of and unforgiven sin. And he writes in verse 2, Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Put him out of the fellowship because he is affecting the whole fellowship. Because he is affecting God's work within the fellowship. It's better to put him out if there is no repentance involved. Churches tolerate so much and then they wonder why God's not blessing. Which is actually our fourth reason. Not only did Achan's sin affect the entire nation resulting in the death of 36 men... But Achan's sin then caused God's blessing upon Israelites to be withheld. Again, God cannot and will not bless when there is sin present. And that can be personal in my own personal life. It can be familial. If, we've got unre- if I've got unrepented sin in my own life, that can cause God to withhold His blessings from my family. And that can be within a church. If there is unrepented of sin within the church, that too can cause God to withhold His blessings from the whole body. God told, told Joshua, that's why the Israelites cannot stand enemies. Folks, we fool ourselves when we think that our sin only affects us personally. Disobedience brings ruin even upon the innocent. Sins affect the effect goes beyond the initial sinner. 
Now, the Old Testament, of course, focuses a lot on obedience and following the law of God. And there's a good reason for that. Because that's when God blesses. <laughs> that's when He blesses. That really hasn't changed much in the New Testament for us. Although now, God's law is written on our hearts because our lives are changed. Our lives are transformed. And the greatest command you know well, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might, with all of your strength, of mind and strength. If that's actually what we're doing, we're going to be obedient to God's word. And we'll be walking by the Spirit, which we talked about last week. The writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 10. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. He's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31, talking about the Holy Spirit. This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them in their minds. And the point he is making here is that Christ, by his blood, has purchased that new covenant promise, which includes the forgiveness of our sins and the replacement of an old, unbelieving, rebellious heart with a new heart of faith and obedience. In the book of Hebrews, we are taught that when we are born again, God gives us a new heart and a new spirit. And the result is that the law of God written in Scripture is no longer offensive to us. It actually becomes a joy and a blessing. We're no longer hostile to it like Paul describes in Romans chapter 8, but instead because of our transformed lives, transformed hearts, transformed minds, we are now submissive to it because we delight to do God's will. Why, when Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, it makes so much more sense. Because we are actually being led by the Spirit and joyfully being obedient to God's Word at, at the same time. Again, go hand in hand. So how seriously does God take sin? Psalm 66, verse 18, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. He wouldn't have even heard me. 1 Peter 3.18, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are attentive to their prayer. That's wonderful. We love that. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Well, define evil. In our day and age today, a lot of different definitions are out there. We talked some about it last week. Paul talks about gratifying the desires of the flesh. That's evil, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. Colossians chapter 3, he includes lust, evil desires, and greed, anger, malice, slander, and filthy language. In Titus 1.9, he includes foolish arguments and divisiveness. These are attitudinal, concerning our attitudes, which can be sinful. He speaks very strongly. Listen, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and foolish arguments and quarrels about the law 
because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, there's, there's no three, three strikes when you're out on this. There's only two strikes. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. That's strong. That's strong scripture. And Paul says, put all these desires of the flesh to death. Put those attitudes to death. Put those behavioral uh, uh, actions to death because they have no place in the lives of the body of Christ. We are to be spirit-filled, spirit-led, continually walking by the Spirit. That means putting self aside. That, of course, is evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit, which we looked at last week as well. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And Paul says, you can do that all day long. No laws against that. Do you know what the secret of Jesus' success was? It was his constant communication with the Father. Constant communication with his Father. And allowing himself to be led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, he wasn't so interested in the praise of the crowds as in spending time with his Father. He would rise early in the morning and pray and talk and listen to his Father. When he selected the 12 disciples, he spent all night long praying. And he explained to his disciples, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. And the only way he would know that is because he's in constant communication with his father. Are we doing what the father does? Jesus is our model and our mentor in life and in ministry. He is our leader and we are to do likewise. There's an old hymn that says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. That's sad, isn't it? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Why? All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. One commentator wrote, When God's people obey His word, their most powerful enemies fall before them. However, we cannot overcome our weakest enemy when we conceal sin. There's something that we need to take to God in prayer this morning. Whether it's an action kind of sin, whether it's a thought pattern kind of sin, whether there's an attitudinal aspect to sin, is there sin in your life that may be hindering God from working in your personal life? Bigger question, is there sin in your life that may be hindering God from working in our church? Back in Joshua chapter 3, consecrate yourselves. Tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things for you. But we need to take, take care of that consecration aspect. In a moment we're going to be singing, in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light. 
He is my strength. He is my song. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. And the question is, are we standing in his power alone, or are we trying to do things our own way? As we sing, ask God, is there anything in my life that's hindering you from working? In me, in my family, in the church? Bring it to light. Bring that strong conviction. And I am ready to admit, I'm ready to confess, I'm ready to ask forgiveness and turn away, eradicate, turn away from that behavior and follow Christ, be led by the Spirit. Father, this morning I pray that you would just speak to our hearts. Just easy to think that we're getting away with things because we're doing it. Nobody else sees, sees it going on. Nothing is hidden from you. You see everything. You see every moment of our lives. You hear every word of our lives. You are listening to every thought that goes on in our minds. And Father, I pray that if we need to come to that consecration moment once again and confess our sins, you are just, you are faithful, and you will purify our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's amazing. Father, do a new work in us individually. Do a new work in us as a church body because, Father, we want to see amazing things that you're going to do. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.